Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why are cities having to take on issues that have traditionally been dealt with at the more national or global level? And what's a super shoe and why are the world's elite runners all using them? But first, last week on the show, you heard the news that the first uranium mine to operate in years has just opened, only seven miles from Grand Canyon National Park. It's called the Pinon, Pinon Plain Mine, and it comes in response to demands for the mineral, which we need for nuclear energy, and to lead us away from dependence on fossil fuels. But the Havasupai tribe has opposed the mine for years, claiming it would contaminate their only source of water and damage cultural sites. The Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has said there's no risk of contamination. Now, for the first time, the U.S. Geological Survey is considering the potential harms to tribes from mining uranium in northern Arizona. The agency published a 20-page report this week acknowledging the risks from uranium mining to the cultural resources of the Havasupai tribe. The impacts of mining within the Grand Canyon watershed are still being understood today, well after a 20-year moratorium was established in 2012, and even now when the area is officially designated a national monument. KJZZ's Michelle Marisco has been reporting on it all from our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, and he joins us now. Good morning, Michelle. Hey, good morning, Lauren. Okay, so what were some of the findings in this latest look at mineral extraction in this area? Yeah, so scientists say that when the moratorium was implemented, the the one you referenced back in 2012, Mm -hmm. there were impacts on tribes that were recognized, but uranium uh, mining is happening south of the Grand Canyon anyway. And that's because the newly operated Pinion Plain Mine was grandfathered in when President Joe Biden created Bajs Nuwajo Itakukveni Grand Canyon National Monument last year. So I spoke with Joe Ellen Hink. Um, she's a scientist that looks at contaminants in the Grand Canyon watershed. And this is what she had to say. And so as we were going along with our research, you know, and, and meeting with different folks, including members of the Havasupai, there were questions that we weren't addressing with our science plan as written. Okay, so what sort of issues did the report cover that are relevant to the Havasupai? Yeah, um, so some of their research, and, and she did this along with tribal uh, Havasupai Tribal Council Leader Carletta Toulouse, mm-hmm. uh, some of their research looked at impacts of, of uranium mining on native plants used in ceremonies like sage, uh, they, they focused on Red Butte, which is a sacred area. It's just a few miles away from the uranium mining operation that Pinion Plain is operating. <clears throat> and they, they looked at how the tribe uses the land to better understand the risks from the mine. So they noted, for example, the use of sweat lodges. Um, sweat lodges are, key, are, are used at key points in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Sweat lodges are important at birth. Um, they're used for healing from physical injury. Uh, they're also used for the transitions from crossing uh, juveniles into adulthood. They're used in prayer. And what hadn't been considered previously is any potential risk from burning area plants and using water and tree branches from the region to utilize those sweat lodges. Mm. Uh, yeah, and another thing that they looked at was the belief system components. So 
food and water and harvested plants and animals fit into, you know, a, a, a Western science risk analysis, if you will. But that that risk analysis doesn't include like environment that is important um, in, in the Havasupai uh tribal belief systems, the ceremonial wheel is very important. And environment is a crucial key to that. That includes the the existence of animals, uh, coyotes, uh, red-tailed hawks, bald eagles, uh, These the, the risks to these animals, and therefore to the Havasupai understanding of life, if you will, had never been considered before when they went in to measure, you know, is this uranium going to hurt somebody? Right. So this is a different take on this. And then the risks of con- contaminants to people using the sweat lodges at Red Butte, that's specifically because of this mining operation? Yeah, the report is intended to lay down sort of a, a a foundation or a framework of understanding of the mine's impacts to the local tribes that move beyond those direct uh, uh impacts of mm-hmm. hink the scientist he refers to this as a citable document implying you know that this is going to be used in the future for future studies of of uh, mining risks uh to people in different areas we do believe that it's also applicable to other mining locations from the approach that we laid out um, and it's important to include those pathways for different tribal communities so, Michel, is the study saying that mining is injuring the Havasupai? No, it, it's not intended to validate contaminant exposure concerns, but rather include the potential of those dangers when they hadn't previously been considered. All right, we'll leave it there for now. KJZZ's Michel Morisco reporting on this from our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff. Michel, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lauren. New data show more than 10% of all elementary schools across the country lost at least a fifth of their enrollment over a four-year period that includes the COVID-19 pandemic. The Brookings Institution also found the number of all schools nationwide that saw that level of drop in enrollment doubled between 2019 and 2021. So where are those students going? And what does that mean for public schools that are losing those students? Linda Jacobson has analyzed the data. She's a senior writer for The 74, which is a national education news website. She joins me, and Linda, lots has been written and talked about where students went, especially during the pandemic. And as we sit here now in early 2024, what do we know about where exactly those students went? I think there's a combination of trends. Certainly, we've seen homeschooling increase. That's documented. We've also seen enrollment increase in private schools. And there's also been an uptick in sort of these new alternative, sometimes people call them hybrid models of homeschooling combined with micro schools, uh, online education. There's more options available for families than there ever have been before. And a lot of the decline, obviously, in enrollment was seen in, in the early grades. So you also had families delaying kindergarten. And yeah, I think that's generally sort of the mix of what we've seen. Yeah. Well, and so we've seen, for example, here in Arizona, in the Phoenix area, a, a few school districts have uh, been talking about or have done 
uh, something where they've had to close schools because of, of declining enrollment. How prevalent is that across the country, that, that enrollment is down to the point where districts are deciding to actually just close schools? I think it's far more widespread than than we think it is. I think that's what the research from Brookings Institution showed, was that there are districts now all over the country that have seen enough of a decline that it's no longer financially smart to keep some of these schools open. They're losing money on serving lunch and transportation and just keeping some of these buildings running. So I think obviously during the pandemic recovery period, nobody wanted to talk about closing schools. It was you know too painful to just get through the pandemic. Uh, and so I think this is the year that we're starting to hear more conversation about having to make some of those tough choices. And it's uh, no longer isolated to just certain major um, urban districts. Yeah. Well, so what did the school administrators tell you about their decision-making process when they realized that it really just wasn't economically feasible and maybe educationally it wasn't great either to keep these schools open and they just had to decide to shut them down? I think one of the sort of markers that a lot of districts are, are talking about is the 300 student level, that when you dip below 300 students, 200 students, that it it doesn't make sense anymore. And it, it's not just the the business side. There's also just what you're providing students in the in the way of a educational experience. Uh, when I talk to some people in the the Jeffco School District, uh, which is right outside Denver, they said they could no longer get after school providers to um, come to schools because they couldn't get enough kids to sign up. So Mm. it didn't make business sense for them. You know, you would have to cancel other extracurricular type programs like the choir or the chess club, or, you know, some of these things that are really engaging for kids because again, there weren't enough students signing up to justify having a staff person or, you know, an advisor assigned to, to something like that. So it was really the content of, you know, the educational experience for, uh, for the kids as well. well. What was the educational experience like for those students who had their schools closed and then had to sort of merge with, with other schools? Well, the, the one that I have, again, focused on most recently was the Jeffco district where we kind of profiled the superintendent there who had to make these tough decisions. You know, they've already closed like 16 schools and they're going to close four more at the end of this school year. And so she was tough on one side to say, we've got to go through this. And the community really doesn't have a choice in the matter anymore. But on the other side, she assigned staff members to both support the administrators in districts I mean, in the schools that were closing, Mm -hmm. as well as some of the administrators that were all of a sudden absorbing 100, 200 new kids, um, just to work through some of that merging of new families, new sort of cultures, you know, from other schools, what were some of the, you know, traditions, uh, et cetera, that could be blended into this this, uh, new school community. And then 
she also assigned liaisons to work with those families that were having to go through that transition. So really trying to hold people's hands, you know, through through the process. And, it, you know, it's never easy. Sure. What did the data tell you about the situation here in Arizona, both, you know, relative to the rest of the country and sort of what it says about what's happening here? When I was looking at some of the data for some of your uh, larger districts, there weren't any numbers that were really high. I think the one that kind of stood out to me was Tucson, Mm -hmm. which had uh, 12 of their schools, which amounted to about 15% of their district, had schools that had lost at least 20% of their kids during sort of this pandemic, pre and post pandemic period. And others, there was maybe just one school that kind of hit that, hit that level. And what stuck out to me about that Brookings research was that usually you hear enrollment loss referred to in terms of district-wide or statewide numbers. And what they did was really look at that school level, which is where families really feel at first. Yeah. So do school district leaders expect that these enrollment drops are over? Or are, are they expecting that more and more kids will continue to, to leave public schools and go elsewhere? I think in some places it has, you know, stabilized a little bit, but places that have seen the decline kind of drop off, it still is not to the pre-pandemic numbers in general. So some came back, but not all, I guess is the way that, that you can look at it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's data that shows through the rest of this decade that we're going to cont- continue to see declines. So I don't think it's over. I don't think anybody thinks it's over. So does that mean potentially more school closures on the horizon? I, I would say absolutely. Yeah. All right. That is Linda Jacobson, senior writer at The 74. Linda, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, going against the grain in Phoenix's subdivision-led housing market. There wasn't a lot of people very interested in contemporary and modernist homes at the time. In fact, most real estate agents didn't want to represent them. They had a longer sales cycle. They couldn't Mm. quite understand them. We'll hear from longtime Valley real estate agents as our series Staying Power continues. But first, cities have often found themselves at the forefront of major issues over the past several years, from social justice to climate change to a global pandemic. And my next guest sat down with mayors from cities on five continents to talk to them about dealing with issues like those. Anthony Flint is a senior fellow at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy and author of the book Mayor's Desk. In it, he interviews mayors in 20 cities, including Phoenix, Boston, D.C., Seoul, Athens, and Bogota, Colombia. He joins me to talk about what he learned. And Anthony, when you talk to the mayors of these 20 cities, were there any common themes that emerged, even though maybe the specifics of an issue might be different? Yes, there there are uh, some common sort of truth themes, um, and uh, one one big one is climate change. Uh, virtually uh, all of these leaders are uh, confronting the impacts of climate change and trying to figure out how they can uh, mitigate 
climate change and participate in, in meaningful climate action in the cities that they're in. Another is uh, equity or affordability. Um, and this, this is really ramped up recently. You take a place like Cincinnati and Aftab Purival, they're having to start about to worry about becoming essentially a climate haven and that their current affordability uh, is kind of endangered. So they're worried about displacement of, of, of current residents. So I would say climate and housing are the big ones. Also, this was during a time uh, of uh, COVID from uh, 2018 to 2023. So there was a lot of discussion about confronting that at the time, that, that emergency, uh, but also that has uh, resulted in some lasting uh, outcomes like changing the streets and uh, sidewalks uh, in, their, in their particular city. Well, so it's interesting because when you think about things like housing, that is typically something that a city would be doing. When you talk about something like climate, it seems to me that historically that's not necessarily a city-based issue. It's a much broader, bigger issue than that. I'm curious what these mayors discussed and what they had to say about cities having to take on some of these issues, some of these challenges that in the past maybe were not the role of cities to be dealing with. Well, it's definitely a global problem, but here's the thing. In, in all of these cities and with all of these mayors, it comes down to they're, they're the ones dealing with it on the ground. So uh, they're the ones dealing with flooding and storm surge uh, and king tides. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a public works function uh, along the lines of uh, fighting fires or, or public mm. safety. I mean, they, they, they're in the position where they have to address uh, the impacts of uh, climate change. And so, you know, it's almost like they have no choice. Um, and they're really uh, uh, innovating and, and uh, approaching it very energetically. I'm wondering if as the years went on, you mentioned you started in, in 2018, like, did you hear different things from mayors, especially pre-COVID to during to maybe, you know, the beginning of the post-COVID era? Did you hear different things or different ideas from mayors about dealing with some of these issues? Yeah, I, I guess the, the streets, well, first of all, responding to the immediate emergency was, uh, you know, was front and center, obviously, right. uh, at, at that time, you know, uh, but some of the things that ended up as as kind of lasting outcomes uh, were, were actually um, beneficial uh, to the city and to cityscapes. And of course, here I refer to, you know, putting the cafe uh, seating out uh, on the sidewalk or even into the street and taking up parking spaces. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the emphasis on being outdoors uh, ended up changing the public realm, I think, in, in some in some good ways. And, and that also ended up, I think, with uh, more acceptance of new ideas in terms of uh, bike lanes and uh, pedestrian safety and, and, and improved uh, sidewalks and the public realm. Um, so that's one good thing I would say that, that uh, came out of COVID. Right. Does it seem as though mayors from different 
cities, be it in in different parts of the country or even on different continents? I mean, you talk to mayors on five different continents. Does it seem as though cities are sharing ideas? Like, could the mayor of Phoenix, for example, be talking to the mayor of Birmingham or Cleveland or Warsaw, Poland or, you know, Bogota, Colombia to try to share ideas? And even if the, the specifics, again, aren't exactly the same, maybe some of the ideas can be adapted f- from one city to another? Well, that's certainly, you know, for those of us who care about cities, that's, that's certainly the hope. And I think there's uh, a number of existing organizations that facilitate that kind of exchange. Uh, they also see each other. Uh, and even if they're brief dialogues, I think there's a sense of Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, The mayor of Birmingham tried a universal basic income pilot. uh, And let's see, let's follow up on that. How did that work out? Uh, I think that kind of information is 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 shared and and it's all to the good. And I'm curious about the mayor's feelings, what they told you about the fact that they are on the front lines of some of these issues, be it traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional city issues or not. Like, are they hoping for more assistance or more action from county, state, federal governments, or are they okay sort of being the ones dealing with some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think they feel like they are thrust into uh, the arena and, you know, they've they've just got to kind of play the cards that they're dealt. Um, but they, uh, you know, universally would like uh, more collaboration uh, and funding from uh, their state and federal governments. During this time, there was a lot of federal money uh, that was on the, on the, in the pipeline. So again, the mayor of Birmingham, Randall Woodfin, was very smart. He actually set up an office to handle what would, you know, was, was potentially a, quite an influx of federal funds after COVID. So the the smart cities were really those that got themselves organized to take in that federal funding, which is no small administrative task. Uh, uh, a lot of cities have sto- historically have left money on the table and they, you know, they haven't used, they haven't efficiently used all the federal f- funding that was coming in. So I think we actually caught cities at a moment where there was more federal support and uh, there was more of a sense that they were that there were really metropolitan regions um, uh, that could work on all of these issues with a lot of collaboration. All right. That is Anthony Flint, a senior fellow at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, author of the book Mayor's Desk. Anthony, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. This summer, athletes from around the globe will gather once again, this time in Paris, for the 2024 Summer Olympics. And this weekend, the fastest and fittest will compete to find out who makes it to Paris at the marathon trials in Orlando. If you tune in, you might notice the thick foamed, kind of funky looking shoes strapped to the feet of the world's most elite runners. They're called 
called Super Shoes, and they've taken over the running world, launching the sport into a maximalist era. But some are calling the propelling shoes essentially doping via technology. To break it all down, I sat down with Victoria Jackson, a sports historian and associate professor of history at ASU, as well as a former competitive runner herself and Nike-sponsored athlete. These shoes have a carbon fiber plate, which helps propel an athlete forward. So it doesn't have a propulsive element. The athlete has to propel themselves, but the fiber plate definitely helps with that. Hmm. And then they have the stack height that seems very exaggerated, big clunky shoe, but actually it's super lightweight thanks to this new technology and the material. That stack height needs to be no more than 40 millimeters high, which is a lot of millimeters when we're talking <laughs> yes, about running shoes. It looks really big if you see these, yeah. Okay, so what does a super shoe do for an athlete, a runner in particular? How does it change the way they run? The way these were kind of unveiled in marketing by Nike, Nike really led the way on this, although it was in competition with Adidas originally, was that they gave athletes a 4% improved performance, that your running economy improves by 4%, which relatively translates to a 4% improvement in the times that you run. I mean, that's something in running. Like, it comes down to hundreds of a second, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, in these longer distances, we're talking minutes. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. So yeah. just massive time improvements. But the other component is the more interesting component from a training perspective, mm-hmm. which is that these shoes, it turns out, allow you to not beat up your legs as badly as you used to. So if you have a marathoner in your life, if grandpa was a marathoner, you might remember stories of like funny stories about not being able to walk upstairs the next day or like (laughs) sitting down and getting in that squat position is like the (laughs) hardest thing in the world to do. You don't get as beat up. Um, Mm. And so what does that mean for training? That means, you know, because it's not just the marathon that these athletes are running. They're running a lot of workouts to prepare their bodies for the toll of a marathon. And if your legs aren't getting trashed every day you're doing a marathon effort workout, it Mm -hmm. means you can recover faster and train harder. So it's not just that these shoes improve running economy. It's that they allow athletes to train harder and get better from a higher training load, which also results in improved performance. So are we seeing this happen? Like how long have these been around? Are you seeing like runners significantly get faster times? A small select group in a very controversial way (laughs) of runners, had access to these in the 2016 Olympic trials and Mm. Olympic Games. But by the time of the 2020-21 Olympic trials and Olympics, every runner you saw in those games had super shoes. And that's because those runners in the 2016 trials were Nike-sponsored, essentially? Yes. Ah. So Nike broke some rules and was allowed to break some rules, kind of signed off by World Athletics, the international federation or governing body for the sport of track and field. So only Nike athletes had super shoes in the Olympic trials to qualify for the Rio Olympic Games and mm-hmm. those Rio Olympic Games in 2016. Um, the fourth place finisher, you know, the worst place to finish in an yeah, Olympic marathon yeah. trial was Kara Goucher, a former Nike athlete who had left Nike and was sponsored by a different company and did not have the super shoes. And she often wonders if she had had access to those shoes in the trials, if she'd been able to run herself onto that team. Hmm. But by the time of the 2020-21 Olympic Games, Nike, <laughs> in a very... I'm putting air quotes here that no one can see, selfless (laughs) act, said any athlete who wanted to run in their shoes could run in them and cover up the Nike swoosh. You know, if you're sponsored by a different shoe company, that shoe company doesn't want you running in Nike. That's like the exact opposite of what you're supposed to be doing as a sponsored athlete of that company. 
you know, because those other companies were trying to catch up to the technology that Nike had introduced through disruption. Mm -hmm. um, And some of them weren't ready yet. By the time of these 2024 trials, every shoe company has has their own successful technology to match Nike's technology. Okay. Okay. So more of an even playing field now. But it's changing the way that people run. It's making them faster. Is this controversial in the sense that like like some people are calling this essentially doping, right? Like it's it's giving you an unfair advantage and using that technology to make you faster than you would be otherwise. Yeah, there, there's two forms of questioning that we need to tease out and separate here. Okay. The first is the uneven playing field, unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. We've solved that because yeah. the technology is available to all athletes now. The other question is how much technology is too much technology how much technology stays on a, a kind of okay, approved, clean side of a line saying, well, it's the athlete performing. This is an equipment. It's part of the uniform of the athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't hit a baseball with your hand. You hit your baseball with a bat. Yeah. And we want to make sure these shoes don't become equipment in the performance of the sport in a way that it's not the athlete whose performance we can evaluate. That's interesting. Okay. I don't think we're there yet. I Mm. think these shoes, for that recovery element, I think these are beneficial to athletes. You know, the only question being if there's long-term concerns about a change in running economy that puts more pressure or stress on different tendons and ligaments in the body. You know, these shoes haven't been around for a full life cycle of an athlete, so we don't actually know long-term consequences. Right. But so far, so good. And again, that that improved (laughs) recovery and the, the lack of tearing your legs apart through a marathon effort is certainly a good outcome here. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we resolve a technological disruption when we think about the life of the sport and records and, you know, is it unfair to athletes who performed or competed before the advent of these shoes? I think we have to think of a Pre super shoe era and a post super shoe era. Wow. And and have records that are separate in that way. There's a, a great story that illustrates this, which is the number of American men who break four minutes in the mile is cataloged and kept a record of by track and field news, the, the so-called Bible of the sport mm-hmm. since 1948. And they take great pride in a chronological list of every American man who's broken four minutes in the mile. Right. So I looked at this list. The first person to do do it um, was in 1957. By 1970, running boom, Bill Bowerman, Steve Prefontaine, Oregon. Yeah. (laughs) There's about 10 men per year breaking four minutes in the mile. Okay. That ticks up just a bit by the 80s and 90s and 2000s to about 15 to 20. In the 20 teens, we have another kind of second wave running boom. And then you see this point at which the shoes are introduced. Mm. And now we have more than 60 athletes a year, American men breaking four minutes in the mile every year. There were 69 American men who ran sub four minutes for the first time in the mile last year. So this (laughs) is fundamentally changing the sport in a real way. It is. Wow. Yes. Okay, so you're not completely opposed to this idea, it sounds like. Do you think this is sort of a natural progression of the sport in the way that, like, it reminds me of the debate over when swimmers started to wear those full body suits, right? Yes. And, you know, the governing body, um, the International Federation for Swimming, said, okay, we'll try this out for a little bit. And we decide we're not going to allow those suits anymore. (laughs) Yeah. That hasn't happened here. And I do think because of the kind of 
wide range of positive benefits from these shoes, I think they're here to stay. Mm. It also helps that it was Nike. Nike holds a lot of power in the sport of track and field. 100%, so. yeah. yeah. All right, that is Victoria Jackson, Associate Professor of History at ASU, a sports historian, and of course, a former competitive runner, NCAA champ, etc. Victoria, thank you so much for coming, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. And now it's time for the next edition in our series, Staying Power, spotlighting some of the Arizonans who have stuck it out in the Valley of the Sun and helped shape it in the process. I spent the last seven weeks trying to figure out how to never come back to Phoenix. (laughs) And then the second I get back, I'm just like, oh, man. You know, you just feel it. It, like, grabs you, and you're like, okay. It all brought me back to Phoenix, Hmm. whether I liked it or not. Think about leaving. No. It felt like the greatest challenge. Whatever you're running to, we should be building that Hmm. here. There's something about this place that, for us, is just magical. It's not like any place else. In the 1980s and 90s, Phoenix wasn't necessarily the place you would turn to find great architecture. It was a classic lace stucco with a red tile roof and acres of, of newly minted subdivisions. Drive around neighborhoods back then and you'd see a whole lot of those red tile roofed cookie cutter homes. And for our next guests who have spent their careers selling real estate here, it started to become a problem. We had a good career in that. We were selling a lot of those homes and that's kind of where we felt, or at least I felt, we were starting to become part of the problem is this this sort of reach out into the desert, the sprawl. It didn't represent exactly where we were coming from. That's Scott Jarson. It was around 1990 that he and his wife of 42 years, Debbie, changed direction and began to do something pretty bold in the new subdivision-heavy landscape in Phoenix at the time. We were selling these houses, and, and, and they're fine. Uh, nothing's wrong with them, but... But we just decided that it wasn't it wasn't what we wanted to sell. I actually I I turned to Scott one day and he said, I want to get out of the business. And I said, Well, what would you do if you stayed in the business? And he said, Well, I like architecture. I'd sell architecture. Mm. And this is in nineteen ninety, and I said, Well, let's sell architecture. Yeah. They call it architecturally unique homes. And their colleagues, well, they thought they were crazy. Well, there was nobody uh, that was interested in in architecture and real estate at that time. There was a few people that would be active in the you know newly founded historic neighborhoods, but there was nobody who was overall looking at the kind of depth of design. Even mid-century homes weren't even considered mid-century at the time. <laughs> and so uh, it was interesting. Our peer group uh, in real estate thought it was really humorous that we would go down this path. They were convinced we'd never sell anything. Uh, there wasn't a lot of people very interested in contemporary and modernist homes at the time. In fact, most real estate agents didn't want to represent them. They had a longer sales cycle. They couldn't mm. quite understand them. And so we, we actually got a little bit of uh, ribbing from our peers about <laughs> this, like, you'll never sell another house again. How did you build it? Was it hard at first? Yeah, it was It, it was hard, but it was really natural for us because mm-hmm. it's what we enjoyed. Yeah. And we found that there were a lot of like-minded people who – also felt that way too, that had been kind of, you know, 
in the closet, so to speak, because they <laughs> nobody yeah. you know would would listen to them talk about architecture or or come see their architectural home. But over the years, as the valley grew and their business grew, that changed. There's more here than I think people realize. We we got so lucky having this. You know, we're a post-war town. Everything boomed here post-World War II. Mm-hmm. And so we got a lot of mid-century architects, homegrown. Uh, Al Beadle had a great career here. Ralph Haver, all these mid-century houses that are now really celebrated, but before they were hidden gems. I mean, so these are things like the Ralph Haver houses have shot up yes. in value. Like you can't get an Al Beadle home for under a million dollars. Now, like these, the mid-century thing has boomed. Do you think you, do you feel like you two were a part of kind of making that a staple of Phoenix architecture and making those things valued? Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, I don't, we don't want to take credit for, for all of that. And it's happened across the country as well. Yeah. But we do feel like we, we, we got it out. We let our little part of the world know that these were good homes and, and the way that they were designed was thoughtful. And they they really had a place here, and and anybody could live in them, no matter how old the home was. Hmm. And it it was a lot of education too, because a lot of these houses were frankly overlooked at the time. They, like, as you mentioned, they weren't celebrated much. Hmm. And uh, we did our our part in selling a lot of these houses and kept people from putting on a red tile roof and stuccoing them and <laughs> just living them for a while. You you you'll, you'll get the feeling. And I'm so happy that the valley has pretty much caught up to how rare it is that we have this kind of real estate inventory here. It's unique. So I want to talk about what you love about a really well-designed house and mm-hmm. what makes it sort of a Phoenix house. Like is there something yeah. that is signature here or a couple of things that maybe are signature here that you're really – you're not going to find everywhere else? Well, I think that a well-designed house is very thoughtful. The house itself is well-placed on the land that's the one thing that we see often in homes that are not uh, well designed is that you the house might look good on paper, but when you go and see it at the site, mm. it's a whole other thing. Okay. Sometimes you think a house could be just shifted just a little bit and it would be perfect, huh. but that wasn't thought of. That's but so good architects think of those things. I would have never thought of that, like the actual yeah. placement on the lot of the house. Yeah. One of the other um, – key signature things about, I think, good design, good architecture is is the scale, right? And by and large, they're, they're more humanist. Uh, the house sort of comforts you in a, in a great way. People think of modern architectures like steel and glass, but, mm-hmm. but a good architect will control that space so that the light comforts you in the day. And I, I think you see this in the better Arizona designs. The, the good architects here know how to control the sun. They know how to keep the sun off of that steel and glass and make it uh, a year-round house that you can enjoy in all kinds of weather, even our extreme climate here in Arizona. So, I mean, obviously your careers have been long here and you've done a lot in in the way that people understand what is good architecture in Phoenix. I wonder, um, looking back on it, did you plan to still be here this many decades later? (laughs) It was one of the first questions I asked Scott. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it's – the desert is a place – especially the Arizona desert, Sonoran Desert is, is really a unique environment. And it's a place that really grows on you and it's hard to leave. Mm. It's, it's, it's the only place in the country like it. And it's beautiful. I mean every time of year you can find something really beautiful. So I tend to want to stay. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm – 
I'm a desert kid uh, throughout. I mean, just, you know, I, I grew up here. I'm used to the flora and fauna. I like the subtle change of seasons we have here. You know, it's crossed our minds to go to other places, yeah. and we've had opportunities for that. But there's something about this place that, for us, is just magical. It's not like any place else, and it's got a signature all its own. I asked my father, who moved here in the 50s uh, from Michigan. He could have lived at that time anywhere mm-hmm. in the U.S., and for a time he lived in San Diego. And I said, Dad, what made you choose the Valley of the Sun? Why did you come to Phoenix's home? Mm-hmm. And he, he said, when I hit the Arizona desert and I could see across that clear sky, this was a horizon that had no limits for me as a man. I could do anything here and didn't have a legacy that maybe came with uh, Michigan for him. Mm -hmm. So I've always thought about that. And I thought that is part of the amazing allure of this valley is that you make your own legacy here. And it is a place of big ideas and broad dreams. It's hard to leave it. Yeah. So now it sounds like you have two sons who are Mm -hmm. in the family business. Do you think that they'll stick around? Are they going to pass this on? I actually think they will. Yeah. I tried to get them to go to other places <laughs> um, out of college, and neither of them wanted to leave. So I, I do. I think they'll they'll stay here. I mean, they, they both they both want to see the world. I think they'll travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But as far as living, this is where they want to live. So I wonder, lastly, then looking back on a big career here, and you know, you're still in the midst of it. You're not done by yeah. any means. Yeah, thank no. you. What do you hope is your legacy, or what do you hope to to achieve before you're done? Yeah, just this um, this overall education and appreciation of what's already here and what's come here before, and what we're so lucky to have to celebrate mm-hmm. this this mid century modern history, which is now really mainstream but was so forgotten for a long time. Our roots are pretty interesting here, and we're different from other places in the country. So if our conversation in real estate can enlighten a few people, maybe open their minds a little bit to what's here and maybe uh, attract a few more creative people in <laughs> and keep them, keep them in Arizona, then that's something we can be really proud of. Do you think we're discounted? Do you think those people kind of look at Phoenix and say, mm. oh, why Phoenix, right? Yeah. I have a a really strong opinion about that. And, and I've, I've been here long enough um, to see these cycles of creativity come and go. So we'll, we'll get a really strong, vibrant, creative community that will often some sort of pick up and leave mm-hmm. and then we'll cycle back again. And that's exciting because every wave of that brings a new ideas and a, a fresh way of looking at living here. And so from that standpoint, I actually think this is a, a very creative place it just runs hot and cold sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I love that. All right. We'll leave it there. Scott Great. and Debbie Jarson, thank you both so much for coming in, and thanks for staying in Phoenix. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks for having thanks. us. Stay tuned to the show to catch more episodes of Staying Power. And if you want to see who else made the list, head to our website, theshow.kjzz.org. Human activity appears to be causing two related species of songbirds to mate. The research finds disturbances to the habitats of the black-capped and mountain chickadees are leading to this hybridization in the Mountain West. 
Last February, I spoke with Catherine Grabenstein, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Colorado at Boulder, who worked on the study. And I asked her what led to look into this hybridization among these different kinds of birds. Yeah, so this is work that came out of my dissertation work, so when I was a graduate student. And so I started basically by doing this really, really broad literature survey, and I noticed this trend, not just in chickadees, but kind of in a bunch of different species all over the globe, um, that humans seem to be doing something to the habitat that was causing species that naturally lived together but didn't hybridize to actually then hybridize. And so that was kind of the impetus was like, okay, there's really kind of broad pattern in a lot of different species. Uh, can we basically investigate this a little bit closer? And then the first step with that um, was looking at basically finding a system, which in this case was the chickadees. So that's kind of the impetus was we saw it in a bunch of other different species and we were like, okay, do we see it in chickadees? So these are different species that are not unfamiliar to each other, but just hadn't been, basically hadn't been breeding with each other, right? Uh, exactly, yeah. Uh, so in basically most of the montane uh, kind of part of North America, uh, mountain chickadees and black-capped chickadees do broadly co-occur. So they're both kind of living and operating in the same space at the same time. Historically, they weren't considered to hybridize, but this study actually is one of the very first that shows that they do hybridize, uh, and they hybridize really over much of the range that they co-occur in. So why is that happening, and what do humans have to do with that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, the why is probably much harder to get at. What we think is happening is kind of twofold. Uh, so first, in these cities in the Mountain West, people like to plant pretty trees, right? So they like to plant their ornamental, you know, sugar maples, these deciduous trees that turn great colors in the fall. Yeah. And those are trees that normally wouldn't be in those montane cities, right? Like typically you'd have a, one species of pine, maybe an aspen, but you're not getting all these ornamental species from out east. So people plant those, and that creates this really great habitat for black-capped chickadees. So we see this kind of artificial increase in black-capped chickadee populations. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is we think there's something to do with humans kind of disrupting uh, something to do with the mountain chickadee distributions where they're coming down from these high elevation habitats into low elevation habitats and then mixing with these really kind of artificially inflated populations of black-capped chickadees. So it's like a twofold thing that's going on where one population is increasing and one population is now moving more than it otherwise would. But it sounds as though what you're saying is that these birds are sort of changing their relationship, right? Like they've been together, they've they've coexisted, as you say. What's what's causing them to, to hybridize now? Yeah. So that's work uh, that's going to be probably a little bit stickier to get at because um, it involves some sort of basically behavior, right? And the only way to really get at that is with experiments. We don't really know what's going on there. One, so basically the black-capped chickadees are more dominant uh, than the mountain chickadees. So when they come in and interact at feeders, black-capped chickadees will kind of always supersede mountain chickadees. And dominance really matters for chickadee mating decisions. So we think it's something going on there where you're getting these two species coming in, interacting at feeders in these kind of basically urban low elevation habitats. One species is more dominant, therefore more attracted to females, and then that's what's causing the hybridization. Because these species aren't pairing up, right? They're not forming these social pairs. Uh, they're kind of mating on the side. We call it extra pair copulations when they're mating outside of the social pair. So that presents this interesting component of basically it's potentially this dominance interaction, but we really don't know. So is this creating like a new species or a new subspecies? What's the result of this? 
Yeah, so that's kind of where my work is continuing on. It's definitely almost certainly not going to create a new species. Hybridization has been really important for lots of different species kind of evolutionary trajectories. I mean, even humans, right? Some proportion of us have a pretty solid amount of Neanderthal DNA in our genome. So we know that hybridization is important. It's very unlikely that it'll create a new species, but what it actually matters for as you know, climate change or as things become more urban, is one species better at navigating urban environments versus the other? There we might see implications, um, but in terms of creating a new species, it's very unlikely, especially in birds. We typically see that more in like plants. Do you have a sense that this might be happening among other species of birds as well? Uh, almost certainly, yeah. I think the, the cool thing about this study is it's pretty kind of novel. Uh, so most people, when they think about kind of human impacts on biodiversity or human impacts on birds, they think about, okay, I've built this city, I've cut down a tree, and now a bird can't nest here. But they don't necessarily think about, okay, I've planted a new tree, and now I'm changing the way that species are interacting, right? So I'm changing kind of the status quo of the way things that have been here are relating to one another. Um, and so this is something that we're really just now beginning to look at, uh, but almost certainly it's impacting other bird species. Is it the kind of thing, do you think, that the more you, you do look for it, the more you'll find it? Probably, yeah. I think also um, it's only just now become a feasible in the past probably like five to ten years for us to be able to sequence the genomes of non-model organisms, right? So the fact that I can go out and you know catch a chickadee, take a blood sample, sequence its DNA, um, and basically look at its entire genome all for, you know, on the order of 500 bucks, which is not <laughs> that expensive, yeah. is pretty novel. What are the implications for the chickadees of this? Like, is this a problem for them? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> like, like all things, it's complicated. Whether or not it's problematic, I don't. I don't know. I think I, I think of it in terms of there's not much left that humans haven't touched or meddled with or changed. Um, so whether or not it's good or bad, I don't like ascribing, you know, or, or labeling things that way. I think okay. it's happening. I think it's something to be mindful of and something to consider, but um, whether or not, you know, one species is going to go extinct versus the other or things are going to die out, I don't I don't think so. But, but yeah, it's hard to say whether it's good or bad. It's complicated. Sure. Well, and I guess to the point you were making, like, it doesn't seem terribly likely that people are going to stop planting certain kinds of trees and moving into certain parts of, of the West. So it doesn't right. seem as though this phenomenon is going to slow down anytime soon. No. And it's again, like, it's not necessarily a thing. I think something to consider is, you know, earth and biology is constantly in flux, right? The way the earth is now is not necessarily the way it was 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. So we're changing things faster than things typically have changed, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? In terms of what's going to happen specifically with the chickadees. Right. Um, I just think it means that things are changing and what it means for, you know, evolution or what it means for the persistence of these birds I don't know. I think if birds bring you joy and you like putting out feeders and you like planting sugar maples, then and that brings you closer to nature. That to me is a bigger win than necessarily caring about increasing hybridization with common songbirds. Right. All right. Catherine, thanks a lot for the conversation. I appreciate it. Of course. Catherine Grabenstein is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Colorado at Boulder. A little bit of songbirds, got a little bit of uh, fancy running shoes, everything in today's show. A little bit of everything. Can't That's ask right. for anything else. Nope. All right. <laughs>
We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. We'll have the Friday news camp, all the politics there is to talk about this week and more. Head to us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ The Show. That'll do it for today. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.